Hello, and thank you for joining us on The Business Advantage. I am Alicia M. Pennington, your host and owner of Advantage Athletic Training. Today, we're going to be discussing critical thinking. This is probably a skill that falls outside of the quote-unquote business topics or business skills parameters, but is foundational in understanding and applying the skills that we will touch on deeper into this season. Like our first episode, Fulfillment, this one sheds light on the basis of what should be established as professionals. As always, we will relate this to athletic training, but regardless of the professional setting, critical thinking is a primary skill set that all of us should be actively working to develop and achieve. This was an interesting episode for me to write because critical thinking seems like such an obvious topic that we all just assume we excel in or that we have a foundational understanding and application of. So when I was considering it as an episode, I had serious doubts about the ability to even find enough information that was relatable. And as I often do when I'm writing podcasts about the intersection of business and athletic training, this is a concern that I have continuously. It's not exactly the easiest thing to relate business topics to athletic training, even though, in my opinion, they are abundantly obvious. You know, as I dove deeper into the information about critical thinking, I realized this is probably one of those topics that we learned about as children and thought, when am I ever going to use this? You know, kind of like long division or trigonometry or, you know, one another one of those kind of topics that you're just seriously questioning as a child. But here I am as an adult and, you know, over seven years into my profession, and I seriously needed a refresher course on what it means to be a critical thinker and to work through a critical thinking process. You know, it, it really is incredible how basic this information is but also how influential it could be in our ability to think thoroughly, communicate effectively, and establish a greater rapport. I'm hopeful that by listening to this episode, you too are able to recognize that this isn't a skill that we should have sloughed off as kids when we're going through elementary education. And I'll touch on it deeper in uh, today's episode about kind of how it was taught to us back then versus how we actually apply it today. But this really is a topic that I wanted to touch on and I chose passionately um, because it has so much relevance to what we do every single day. Key learning objectives. Identify the four primary components of critical thinking. Understand the value in actively pursuing critical thinking. Acknowledge the biases one may have as the result of default thinking and actively work towards a more objective mind frame. 
Let's start out by defining what critical thinking means by definition. Naturally, I found myself at criticalthinking.com when I was researching and trying to find information on this uh, just to look up the definition of critical thinking in the dictionary isn't exactly applicable. So criticalthinking.com and the National Council for Excellence in Critical Thinking define it as the intellectually disciplined process of actively and skillfully conceptualizing, applying, analyzing, synthesizing, and or evaluating information gathered from or generated by observation, experience, reflection, reasoning, or communication as a guide to belief and action. So basically, that is just a whole bunch of verbs to describe a process in which things occur, um, which gives me mild flashbacks to chemistry class, uh, but just stick with me here. So conceptualizing, to form a concept, pretty straightforward. Applying, to put to use. Analyze, to examine critically. Synthesizing, combine. And evaluating, determine the significant worth or value of. So we form a concept, we put it to use, we examine it, then we take those results and we combine it, and then we determine the worth or value of that. Sounds a lot like how we conduct research, actually. And then this process is accomplished by observation, experience, reflection, reasoning, or communication, which again are sort of the um, methods in which we would conduct our research. And then lastly, we allow our end results to be the guide to our action and belief. So very much in line with what we already do as athletic trainers, which is practicing evidence-based medicine. And even for those of you who have experience in conducting your own research, this process should be uh, pretty apparent to you. All we need to do is apply it to our thinking and our everyday conversations and how we approach various situations instead of just thinking about it in a scientific and research way. So really critical thinking is about how we interpret information, the pathways that we have subconsciously created that the information is filtered through, and then our actions as the result of this interpretation of information. Seems fairly basic, right? Except for that one word that I mentioned, subconscious. Because there are so many filters that can be applied through our subconscious mind and our thinking, altering how we dissect information that is coming in and thereby having an impact on how we act on that information is the difference in how we interact in the world. It is these 
seemingly subtle subconscious effects that we must bring to the forefront and learn how to control. When I say the word filters, I can't help but think of Instagram or Snapchat. And this is a way to uh, think about it. When we look at a picture that has been posted on social media without the really obvious filters, you know, like the flower crown or something like that, when we're looking at a photo, it's easy for us to interpret that as the truth for us to see not the photoshopping that's happened, not the color changes and, you know, the self tanner and all of the things that have happened in the background. All we can see is the photo at its end result that's in front of us. And we take in that information. That's sort of like how we exude the information after it's gone through all the filtering in our mind. And so by us acting on and putting out actions into the world that look like the end product of a photoshopped picture, we're not actually being authentic. And it's not our own fault, really, because what happens to us as children and how we develop these subconscious ways of thinking are, for the most part, out of our control unless we dive deeper and dissect them as adults. And so as we're thinking about this today and you're considering critical thinking, think about it from the perspective of we want to remove those filters. We want to get back to the original photo, see it in its true authentic way, the way that it was captured. And we want to do the best we can to then present that photo in its most original and authentic way so that others also have the opportunity to interpret it for themselves. By applying all those filters and changes that we think make it look prettier or brighter or whatever it is, we are then changing the way that everybody else interacts with that photo. And it could be as a result of our own self-conscious, our ego, and other things that are going on internally, and we're going to touch on that. But when it comes to information, and especially in how we operate as athletic trainers, it is imperative that we are able to present information and to give others involved, such as coaches or parents or administrators or whoever it may be, the opportunity to see the information in its truly authentic form. I I think I've kind of already explained it to you, but what value, what significance does this have to athletic training? Well, part of what motivates me to write these episodes and share with athletic trainers these business topics is that so much of what we already do every single day in athletic training is rooted in this. It makes my job really easier when I can just simply point out when something that we already do on an everyday basis is an example of critical thinking like I just did. Our process of evaluation, what athletic trainers go through in evaluating an injury and specifically utilizing soap notes is a perfect example of 
how athletic trainers already utilize a process of objective evaluation to conceptualize, apply, analyze, and synthesize information. And so working in our favor, there is already sort of a spelled out and predetermined tool, if you will, that we are able to work with and put us through an appropriate evaluation. We all learn what a SOAP note is in our education programs, and it's almost in a way kind of beaten into us because you go at least in my education program, we did a soap note for every uh, body part that we covered. And so we would learn all about the body part and then kind of the uh, synthesis of our education for that uh, anatomical location would be that we had to write a soap note for it. By going through this uh, process of writing a soap note, it essentially ensures that we aren't applying our own biases or skipping over an objective step in order to collect the necessary information to complete the critical thinking and come to an informed decision. So in a way, this is a step-by-step process that we could, if we chose to, follow with every single injury that gets presented to us. Now, The major limitation that we have for ourselves is that we start to make assumptions about what an injury may be as opposed to just objectively evaluating it every single time. And, you know, we are told to look at the signs and the symptoms. We go through ranges of motion. We do manual muscle testing. We go through the dermatomes and the myotomes. We uh, determine the mechanism of injury. We do our special tests. We have diagnostic tests. We have all of this that is available to us for us to work through a critical thinking process. And it's only as we gain experience and we get deeper into our career that we start jumping to conclusions about what something might be. We find ways to skip over the range of motion or the manual muscle testing. We assume that the neurological aspect is intact or there are various other steps that we may skate over for whatever reason. I'm not judging or blaming. I personally am uh, you know, guilty of doing this. And truly when we're in a triage situation, such as what happens like in the high school setting, which majority of athletic trainers work in, we oftentimes need to be more efficient in our evaluation process. And one way to do that is by essentially looking at what is presented in front of us, eliminating the necessary steps. You know, if they walk in, we probably don't need to do a manual muscle test of the quad because they walked in, their quads are probably working just fine. I'm simply pointing out that when we skip over steps that may be able to provide useful information, even 
if it confirms our assumption, it's important in the critical thinking process. So even if that person is able to walk in, fully bear weight, no problem, if we actually isolated each one of the quadriceps muscles and determined, oh wow, the VMO isn't firing the way that it should be, maybe that's what's leading to the knee pain that they're experiencing. Now, again, I'm not making assumptions or judgments or uh, you know, implying to any of you that if there was someone who walked in with knee pain that you wouldn't check the VMO. All I'm saying is that sometimes we skate over certain tests from an efficiency standpoint so that we can arrive at a quicker uh, evaluation and diagnosis and be able to move on to the next person. And again, I'm not pointing fingers or faulting anybody for that. I, I think that that's in a way uh, survival, especially in the, the secondary school setting. But simply to say, if we want to be critical thinkers, if we want to evaluate things from an objective perspective, we've got to be able to have all of that information available to us. And like I said, perhaps what that information does for us is just confirm an assumption we already had, which may be, well, all four of the quadriceps muscles are firing perfectly fine. That's not what is contributing to the knee pain, but at least we can cross that off of our list so that if we're still dealing with this knee pain three weeks from now and we think, hmm, I wonder if the VMO is firing right. And we can say, nope, I checked that originally. And you know, maybe you would recheck, no problem. But if nothing else is able to confirm the assumptions that we already have, you know, all the neurological is intact, he has full range of motion, da da da, whatever it is. Previous experience is valuable in shaping our next decisions. It should only lend to our evaluations, not remove from further ones. We shouldn't allow our biases to take over each time we evaluate a new injury. We have to consider all of the potential options and we have to remove our preconceived ideas about what this may or may not be. It's great to use information that we have discovered from a previous injury that reminds us to look for that sign or symptom in other cases, but we shouldn't substitute that for a previously useful diagnostic test. So for example, Perhaps a football athlete presents with stomach pain and a fever after being hit. You're probably thinking, this kid ate too close to the game. He's not feeling well. Maybe he's coming down with the flu. You know, he's kind of a crybaby and he's just looking for attention because that was, you know, his first play ever in a game and he took a big hit. So, you know, he's just trying to get everybody to pay attention to him. And then to find out the kid has a ruptured spleen. So moving forward, we don't necessarily want to discount someone who's having a fever and a stomach ache as just being a crybaby. But you also aren't going to simply assume that everybody who comes to you with a fever and a stomach ache has a ruptured spleen. 
And so you use the experience to build on your ability to evaluate. You don't simply substitute it for your other education. And, you know, while we cannot discount what experience is able to provide us in way of confidence and decision-making, it's equally important to continually analyze and synthesize both the subjective and objective aspects that are being provided to us to determine an appropriate plan of action, just like our SOAP note does for us. So does this really affect us in a larger way? Does it have an implication on our growth and development as a profession? Well, let me suggest that many reasons why when you look at job postings, they want three to five years of experience is because they are seeking and looking for professionals who have seen the ruptured spleens and know what to do with them. But I challenge that thinking because in many ways, new grads and those with lesser of professional experience are more thorough and inclusive with their skills. To an extent, the deeper you get into your career, the more kind of set in your way you become. And again, this may be as a result of discovering what is most efficient, what works best for you, developing processes and systems that speak to your abilities. And again, I'm not challenging or threatening those, but this is where being a critical thinker has an impact on the growth and development of our profession. Having an approach of critical thinking is a reflection of each one of us professionally. The more open-minded we remain and the more objectively we can continue to approach situations professionally, the greater opportunity we have to not only expand our own learning, but to advance our profession. And again, this is right in line with being practitioners of evidence-based medicine, of being continual learners, of doing exactly what you're doing right now, which is continuing your education in sort of a non-traditional way with non-traditional topics, but you, in essence, are being a critical thinker right now as you listen to this podcast. And if we personally can't see it within ourselves, then I challenge you to consider it from the perspective of part of the reason why athletic trainers struggle so much with being recognized for who they are and what we do is because we are not distinguished from personal trainers or other professions. And so in a way, it's other people's inability to work through a critical thinking objective that handicaps our own profession. 
So if you struggle to understand how this is applicable to your everyday, at least consider it in that perhaps if you became more of a critical thinker, you could evidence that to those around you and maybe just uh, indirectly be able to advance our profession in that way. According to criticalthinking.com, there are two primary components of critical thinking. One, a set of information and beliefs generating and processing skills. So this is basically the inherent bias that we all have. This bias may be just our default thinking. It's the compartmentalizing in our brain that it just naturally does in order to synthesize information. And we, you know, we're all aware that the human body is naturally what I say lazy. Basically, it wants to do the least amount of work and expend the least amount of energy in order to maintain homeostasis at all times. It's actually um, quite unfair of me to refer to it as lazy because what it actually is, is an extremely high level of efficiency. And so as a result, our mind has natural tendencies for processing information. And what we need to do is work to bring those processes into our conscious mind, becoming aware of these and ensuring that the decision-making process is taking place thoroughly, which brings us to the second component of critical thinking, the habit based on intellectual commitment of using those skills to guide behavior. These habits have been built off of not only our education, but more importantly, our experiences. Ever since we were born, we have been taking in information and making determinations about certain things. Our brains naturally compartmentalize information for ease of processing and storage. It is our responsibility as critical thinkers to identify those habits and commit our minds to a more critical process in our thinking. As with anything else, it will in turn take this new process as a habit. And soon enough, that will become our subconscious way of going about sifting through information, thereby replacing our previous potentially biased or judgmental processes. So then your baseline and skill pro- your skill processing moving forward is a critically thinking one. Kind of what we're talking about here is the process and ability to kind of zoom in and zoom out in order to determine the appropriate amount of landscape for our field of vision. 
again, thinking back to that portrait that we apply the filters to, what is it really that has been captured in that photo that we need to pay attention to? Sometimes we are too far zoomed in and we miss contextual cues and it in turn leaves out vital information for the scope of the field that we are trying to see what this picture is giving us. Or at other times, we're so far zoomed out that we allow too many factors to play into our decision-making when really, if we could zoom in a bit and focus, then we would be able to work through that critical thinking process more efficiently. And so, again, going back to that example of the photograph that we take, is it one person that is standing in the middle of Central Park and are we trying to determine how lush and green Central Park is or are we trying to see what that person is wearing? And that kind of gives you the idea of if we need to see what that person's wearing, we got to zoom in on that photograph. We are going to be distracted by all of the trees and the lusciousness of Central Park And we're not going to be able to determine what that person is wearing. However, if we are so zoomed in on that person that we can narrowly see a background, then we won't have any of the necessary information to determine how lush Central Park is. The same goes for every day in athletic training as it relates to Um, an injury or a scheduling conflict or other examples that I'll bring about in a little bit, we need to be able to actively zoom in and zoom out of who should be involved in the decision-making process. What information am I missing? What information do I have that doesn't need to be considered? What are the different variables that need to be included in order for me to work thoroughly through the critical thinking process. And so that brings us to the next portion, the four primary components of critical thinking. According to Richard Paul and Linda Elder in the Miniature Guide to Critical Thinking Concept and Tools, there are four primary components that a critical thinker adheres to. One, raises vital questions and problems formulating them clearly and precisely. Two, gathers and assesses relevant information using abstract ideas to interpret it effectively, comes to well-reasoned conclusions and solutions, testing them against relevant criteria and standards. Three, thinks open-mindedly with alternative systems of thought recognizing and assessing as need be their assumptions, implications, and practical consequences. Finally, communicates effectively with others in figuring out solutions to complex problems. Again, I will reiterate, this is very much the process of conducting research. 
You come up with a hypothesis, which is raising vital questions and problems. You gather data, be it background information for your literature review uh, or collecting data and information. You then test that against several other other alternative systems of thought. This is sort of uh, the research methods and the um, conclusions that you come to at the end of what could have led to these results, maybe what biases or judgments or inability for you to control variables were applied to that research. And then what does this mean for the outcomes that you determined? Of all the kind of ethereal stuff that we've discussed so far about the subconscious mind, our ability or lack thereof to zoom in and out, this is sort of the the meat of what I want you to take away from today's podcast. The concrete information that you can take notes on, place sticky notes on your desk and actively work towards. This is the four-step process that I think if each one of us could work on implementing into our everyday practice, we are going to be better human beings. We're going to be better practitioners. We're going to be overall better people for working through this critical thinking process. So let's dive in, take a deeper look at it of each step and kind of how it applies to what you could be doing on an everyday basis. One, raises vital questions or problems. This doesn't have to be a research topic. This is actually something that occurs just about every single day for most people and especially athletic trainers whether it's a new injury that walks through the athletic training facility, if there's a scheduling conflict of you needing to determine where to prioritize your presence or a return to play scenario. Every single day, athletic trainers are faced with vital questions and problems that they need to work through and solve. So there's no lack of opportunity for you to have this critical thinking process at your disposal. Two, gathers and assesses relevant information. Well, we've already discussed how to do that with an injury. We know that the SOAP note process is a pretty ideal scenario for us to, um, you know, pretty much with our eyes closed and default, be able to work through a critical thinking process. So look, let's look at the example of a scheduling conflict. Well, we would need to examine all of the factors that are playing into why there is a conflict for your schedule. This could include, is it a home game versus an away game? Are there various levels of play going on? So freshman, JV, varsity, Is it practice versus competition? Um, Is there a higher incident of injury or various other factors that are playing into it? Maybe there's an injured athlete that is going to have their first return to play at 
one schedule at one site versus the other. Perhaps there is a field situation. There's a muddy and torn up field at one place and an impeccable, you know, maybe indoor basketball court at the other. There's different factors that play into what creates something a scheduling conflict. And so let's say uh, it's a return to play situation. Gathering as much information from all the parties involved is important. Maybe it's um, parents or physicians. Uh, Maybe there's state law that's playing into effect. Your own notes. All of the uh, parties that might be involved in order to make a appropriate return to play decision. And so all of this aids in effectively coming to a well-reasoned conclusion and multiple solutions. That's important. Then, essentially, testing these conclusions or solutions against relevant criteria. So let's take the situation of the scheduling conflict. Let's say that there is an away soccer game at a field where it's a universal field that they're just playing at a local park, but the field is in poor condition. It rained yesterday. It's all muddied and torn up. And you have an athlete who is returning to play for the first time after an ankle injury. Also, you have a home basketball game going on that uh, requires your attention. And so you are, in essence, working through the options that you have available to you in order to provide what you deem the most appropriate level of care for each scenario. For soccer, that might mean having the coach oversee the return to play athlete. Maybe you speak with the athletic director. They can cover home basketball, uh, the JV portion while you go and uh, work the first hour of soccer or whatever it is. Essentially, you're brainstorming. You're thinking about all of the different options that are available to you and then presenting those as solutions to the parties involved. So let's say that you had just decided, okay, it's going to be the coach's responsibility to oversee that soccer who's returning to play, and I'm just going to stay home for basketball. Well, what if that coach didn't feel comfortable doing that? What if that coach uh, was going to be late to the game? What if, that, what if there were various other factors that played into why that coach wasn't able to do that, but you had already come to that conclusion for yourself? Instead, what you could have done was presented the various options and then gathered more information determined what is going to be an appropriate scenario for me to get both of these scheduling conflicts covered in the most appropriate way. And so by eliminating your own bias, by not coming to conclusions on your own, by gathering and including as much information as possible, you give yourself and all of the other parties involved, the greatest opportunity to find the solution that fits best for everybody, not just yourself. Testing these conclusions and solutions against the relevant criteria, like we're talking about, is 
in a way, probably something that happens subconsciously. Um, you know, for example, in a scheduling conflict, we wouldn't just decide we're not going to work. We're not going to show up. It's too much. Uh, I'm just going to not go to work that day. That's something that our mind automatically removes as an option. Although technically it is an option. And in the return to play situation with an athlete, we know that returning someone who's not physically able to play obviously isn't a scenario in our mind, but that is an example of how our subconscious just naturally weeds out options that we wouldn't otherwise consider. And just evidence for you that our mind is actually doing this despite us being consciously aware of it. So then moving on to step three, thinking open-mindedly. In my opinion, this is where most people get stuck. Understandably, we have a tremendously difficult time seeing a situation from someone else's perspective. It's, it's tough for us to be able to think about everything from every possible scenario. And that's part of why it is important and downright easier to just include people in conversation. For us, we can't understand, coach, why don't you just feel comfortable watching this soccer athlete return to play? It would make my life easier. It would make sure that the other athletes at the basketball game have appropriate coverage. I don't understand why you can't just do this, but we're not considering from their perspective, potentially the liability they're taking on. Maybe, you know, they've previously taken on that responsibility and the athlete got injured and they felt it was their responsibility. Maybe they just don't have a working knowledge of the injury and, you know, don't understand what's, what it means to watch them as they return to play. There's so many different factors that could be playing into that, but yet, us applying our own assumptions and judgments and biases to that coach not only hinders us from critically thinking through that process, but then we potentially um, hinder and handicap the rapport that we've built with that coach. We potentially create a scenario where we're going to have uh, inflamed conversation and maybe people's emotions are going to get elevated and really why? Why? Because who's going to end up the person who is affected by this? The athlete who's returning to play. And very rarely is it us, the people who are lacking the ability to critically think about something that ends up getting dealt the short straw. But moment after moment, situation after situation, scenario after scenario, what comes to be understood about you in those situations is that you jump to conclusions, you make assumptions, you're not easy to work with, you're not flexible, all as a result of not being able to think critically about a situation, which, you know, that's not what we want. So considering other thought processes and recognizing our assumptions is a step of critical thinking that probably makes the largest difference in how our decisions are communicated and thus 
how others will respond. This is a crucial stage where the opportunity to set ourselves up for success and make our path tremendously less difficult is important. This is the step where information really gets muddied because asking yourself to think open-mindedly requires putting your own emotions and beliefs aside. It asks us to consider that someone else's approach to a situation may be just as valuable as our own. It challenges the ego, which is one of the loudest voices in our head. It forces us to disarm our own preconceived thoughts about what is right and allows the opportunity for other answers to exist outside of our own. This is incredibly challenging. I would not be surprised if you are sitting on the other side, cringing and sweating as I am speaking these words, because these biases, the ego that lives within us, the voice in our head that says that our way is right, resists us and restricts us from being able to consider that other answers may also be correct, that multiple right answers can exist simultaneously. And really, like I said, this is where we have the opportunity to make the biggest difference in our own assumptions and synthesis of information in how it then is communicated, which is step four, being able to effectively communicate is a crucial final stage in the critical thinking process. Because despite all the work (laughs) that you may have done internally to challenge your thought processes, to overcome the ego, to pull the biases out of the subconscious mind, if they aren't communicated effectively, we're going to totally handcuff ourselves from being successful. It's so often said, it's not what you say, it's how you say it. Body language, tone of voice, inflammatory remarks, All of them make a difference in how this message is received. Being open in your communication, presenting solutions as dialogue, and offering relevant information to accompany a decision is helpful to the other party in feeling like They are a part of the process. Unfortunately, I have been a part of many 
mitigation situations where remarks were made and a situation escalated probably beyond what it needed to be simply because of ineffective communication. You have to realize that because of our position as medical practitioners, we have to be smart about how we phrase things. Oftentimes, it can come across as harsh or condescending because perhaps we haven't perfected our ability to deliver news to a layman. We use, you know, words that are bigger than and uh, difficult to understand and, and digest. And so the person who you're speaking to feels like you're just talking above their head. Um, or we come across very matter of fact because we've done an evaluation and we know for sure that this person cannot return to the game. And unfortunately, we deliver it in that way. We have to recognize that sometimes it is not received the way that we intended. And we have to be thoughtful about how we deliver information, especially if it's going to be news that's difficult to hear. And as a profession who is actively working on increasing our awareness and our value, we could really help ourselves by thinking open-mindedly and critically about various situations. Really quick, I, I want to touch on something um, that if you're anything like me started to arise within myself as I was writing this episode, um, because what I was hearing in a lot of what I was writing is that, so I'm going to have to be, for lack of a better word, agreeable. I'm going to have to find ways to say things in ways so that other people can hear it and it comes across easy or uh, I'm basically going to have to surrender my own way of thinking and my own conviction in what I believe simply so that other people take it easier. I mean, come on, Alicia. So... I worked through this a little bit. I, I really had to think about this. Um, and so what I have arrived at is that there is a common misconception that if you are agreeable, then you're a pushover or that you're not willing to stand up for what is right. And I want to challenge this misconception with the ability to professionally disarm and de-escalate a potentially inflammatory situation. When voices are raised and emotions are heightened, it is evidence that we are too zoomed in. There's a very high potential that we have not considered the other person's point of view, and we are letting our own ego take over the conversation if we find ourselves in a situation that feels heightened. 
Most likely, we have not objectively evaluated the situation from multiple angles, which, in my opinion, almost immediately disarms a heightened conversation. So becoming agreeable really means that you're able to think critically, remove your ego from a situation, and can professionally work towards a solution. I personally don't think that this means that you're a pushover or that you're not willing to stand up for what's right because there are ways to achieve both. And you're going to do yourself a lot more in terms of building a rapport if you can confidently and calmly state a conclusion or a solution that you have come to in a way that is respectful and professional to all parties involved. I'm here to tell you matter-of-factly that going and saying something with conviction does not make it true. It does not make it any more favorable for you simply because you raise your voice and strongly argue your point of it. I promise you that if you're able to come to the table presenting multiple solutions, having considered it from multiple angles and cumulatively coming to a solution that is agreeable to everybody, you are not going to be seen as a pushover. You're going to be seen as someone who's opinion people value, whose confidence and awareness people want around them, you're going to be invited to more conversations and you're going to have a place at the table in higher level decisions because you are able to evidence and display that you can think critically about situations. So I want to go back to the beginning of our podcast where I talked about learning critical thinking as children. Um, So on the website, criticalthinking.com, there is a section dedicated to curriculum for children to increase their critical thinking skills. The website allows you to select an age and then a subject and then a product pops up um, with pretty much every option that you can imagine for your little bit so they can learn critical thinking. I decided to challenge myself with the official critical thinking quiz and it turns out I am not a critical thinker at all. In fact, I had a hard time identifying any of the components that we've discussed here, conceptualizing, synthesizing, evaluating, applying with any of their questions. No surprise, I couldn't pass the test. And the types of questions that were on this quiz are honestly ones that used to frustrate me in school because It's the way, it's the kind of questions when the teachers would say, just think about it. So let me give you an example. And hopefully I don't display my 
uh, lack of ability to critically think by reading this to you. And hopefully you all feel as dumbfounded as I did when I was working through these problems. So this is an example taken from the site. I have quoted it verbatim. I did not make any of this up. Here's the question. You have only an eight liter jug and a three liter jug. Both containers are unmarked. You need exactly four liters of water. How can you get it if a water faucet is handy? Okay, here's my thinking. Fill the eight liter jug up halfway. Why did you even mention the three liter one? Wait a second, was that there to confuse me? Oh, hold on, let me read it again. Nope, only need four liters. All right, I'm sticking with the answer that we're gonna fill the eight liter one up halfway. Pretty obvious, right? Wrong. I am not kidding you. When this is the answer that is provided, I have literally copied and pasted this from the website. Fill the three liter jug three times, each time dumping the water from it into the eight liter jug. The third time, this will leave one liter of water in the three liter jug and the eight liter jug will then be filled. Dump the water from the eight liter jug down the drain and then empty the one liter of water from the three liter jug into the eight liter jug. (laughs) Hold on, we're not done yet. Now fill the three liter jug again and dump the water into the eight liter jug. The eight liter jug now contains four liters of water. (laughs) What? I mean, seriously, is that what they consider critical thinking? No wonder we skated right over it as children. I would be so frustrated with that as being an option. And I understand because they said that the jugs are unmarked, why you would need to do that. But my goodness, seriously, right? So not exactly the most applicable to real world settings, nor the most efficient or effective way of going about it. And so after going through multiple of these questions and looking at various tests for ages and subjects and all that kind of stuff, and for lack of a better term, banging my head against the wall and thinking about the utilization of critical thinking, what I have deduced is that As children, and really even now as adults, critical thinking is problem solving, which is a really clean way for all of us to think about it as well. There are so many components that make up a problem, and thus there will be various ways to solve it. I assume that the intention of websites like this are that the overall message to children is that critical thinking is about working through a problem and coming up with a solution regardless of the circumstances. In a way, I can really appreciate this as many of us face problems every day. 
from not having a budget to purchase rehab equipment. So we fill milk gallons with water or sand or working through scheduling issues on your limited number of budgeted hours. We all have problems that we face every day. The ability and skill to problem solve through the process of critical thinking is invaluable to us all. And unfortunately, has gone by the wayside for many of us. With the advent of Google and the internet, our minds have become incredibly lazy, pretty much always defaulting to the easiest answer. So instead, we have to retrain our minds, give it the appropriate amount of thought, and be able to come up with several solutions. A great example of critical thinking on display for us is when the NATA releases white papers. This is their version of critically thinking through a large problem and sharing the potential solutions that they have come up with. Using the ELM degree change as an example, the white paper first displays the work group which portrays the collaborative manner in which these problems are being examined. The overview provides relevant background information for effective interpretation of the problem being worked through. It then moves on to key findings, which are the proposed solutions, and then recommendations, which exemplify assumptions, implications, and potential consequences. This is then released to the congregation for open comment, which is the communication phase that allows for further problem solving. Now, granted, not every hurdle that we face in our career requires the type of examination that an NATA white paper does. However, it exemplifies the process in a practical usage way. It evidences how our colleagues are using critical thinking in pragmatic ways to solve larger problems that we face as a profession. In summary, when I started researching for this podcast, I really was unaware of how ingrained our own default thinking patterns were. And so I really liked this quote from Richard Paul and Linda Elder in the Miniature Guide to Critical Thinking Concepts and Tools. It says, quote, much of our thinking left to itself is biased, distorted, partial, uninformed, or downright prejudiced. Yet the quality of our life and that of which we produce, make, or build depends precisely on the quality of our thought. This quote affected me pretty deeply because who doesn't want to have a high quality life? And if what is said here is true, then our quality of life is largely dependent on the quality of our thinking. I studied sports psychology for my master's degree because I knew that 90% of what happens below the neck starts above it. So 
it begged the question to me, if we don't use critical thinking, how can it affect us and our profession? I don't know the full answer to that, but I think that we improve our chances of revealing the truth and finding the best solutions possible when we utilize critical thinking. Since athletic trainers already serve as the middleman in so many scenarios, it should be our professional responsibility to be the critical thinking hub. Of course, our brains are going to hurt at the end of the day, and we're going to naturally want to choose the easy answer. But we owe ourselves and the population we serve to go through the process of conceptualizing, applying, analyzing, and evaluating. Remember, it's not about being right. As many correct scenarios may simultaneously exist. What it's about is finding the best possible solutions, which are determined as the result of the critical thinking process, working alongside others to execute the solutions and then using that experience moving forward, not as a bias, but as a source of information. Here are some ways that you can immediately implement critical thinking into your everyday. Write down the four steps of critical thinking, posting it somewhere that is visible to you. Use it as a guideline each time you face a new problem. Evaluate the biases you may have. No judgment or fault to be placed, just to objectively look at yourself and understand how some of your information may be processed. Identify what it means for you to live and work as a critical thinker. Thank you for your time today. I hope that you got as much out of listening to this podcast as I did writing it. And you look forward to implementing critical thinking in your everyday. On our next episode, we will be discussing branding and marketing. 